Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 35. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow hosts Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hello. So a big thank you to our last guest, Shannon Johnson, who talked about her career and the College of Radiographers Industry Partnership Scheme research grant that she was awarded. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Yatman Sang, who will be discussing his career today, advanced practice and equality, diversity and inclusion. So yeah, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that we finally have you on. You're, you've been on my hit list since we started. So thank you so much. Do you want to start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and, and your current role? That's fine, Joe. I would say that, you know, actually it's my pleasure to be here. You know, I tried to get on here for a long time. So finally it's my turn. So thank you for having me here today. And it's definitely, as I say, that it's an absolute pleasure to be here to join you and them and, you know, on the broadcast. And so a quick introduction on my role. So clinically, I'm employed as a consultant therapeutic radiographer at Mount Vernon Cancer Center. So in general, my role that actually is leading the kind of the specialized radiotherapy service at my current center. Um, but I think later on we can go into details what actually the consultant practitioner that we expect to do. Um, academically, I hold associate professor title for the clinical academic career for the London South Bank University as well. So I think that is my um, cover. Try my best to pursue the clinical academic role, which I think, Joe, that you will know quite well, and same as Neiman as well. Perfect. And when you say what is a consultant therapeutic radiographer, you know, people, even as therapeutic radiographers, sometimes don't really know what that is or what that means. So can you talk a little bit about that role? Yeah, definitely. So um, the whole consultant practitioner, actually, concept actually started way in 2000 in Department of Health. So, you know, we try to utilize is about, you know, the, the kind of the, the expertise of the diagnostic and therapeutic radiographers to drive towards the protocol-based care. So we're able to, you know, introduce proper skill mix. At the same time, we're going to lead about a consultancy to kind of inventing, innovating, you know, improving the patient pathway, you know, based on a professional identity. So I think, if I say the word consultant, a lot of time people start first thing first because we're in healthcare. They try to link us with medics. Some of it can be, you know, the skill mix that we can try to provide is about, you know, cover some of the medical fields that, you know, the, the usually the, the, the medics they try to provide. But at the same time, I think if you look at the um, nurse consultants, you know, consultants, physiotherapists, uh, consultants, OTs, in that sense, what we try to do is, you know, we will provide the clinical expertise in our own specialties, but at the same time, the consultancy actually coming up from our own professional background. So if you look at the kind of the, the society and college radiographers for consultant practitioner, apart from clinical expertise, there's another three domains that we look after. Mostly that will be about our professional consultancy, leadership, and then research and education. So, you know, all these three domains combined with the clinical expertise, you know, kind of form the kind of job role as a consultant practitioner. And how did you come to be a consultant? So, you know, I know I've got some students who are like, that's my aspiration, I want to be a consultant. And they're all thinking, yeah, what do I have to do? So what did you have to go through to get to that role? Uh, to be honest, Joe, I think it's kind of, um, it's something that I would say that I kind of, 
encountered by chance. And so, um, and for my career, actually, I've been staying in the um, the NCLI, the Radiotherapy Trial College Assurance Group, for a really long time. So, for the majority of my career, that I spent about eight years there. And then for my local cancer center, I think at that time, um, because of the um, kind of a specialized radiotherapy service, the demand is going up. So we knew that we want something that you know, more innovative. We want to introduce a flexibility in the workforce. At the same time, we want someone to lead the service. So they advertise a consultant practitioner post at that time. So in that sense that, you know, I come into equations that just by the timing, that is a good timing that, you know, I just really want to go back to the clinical role. So I think that is a kind of encounter. So I started my role in 2014. So I always say at that time, actually, um, I think the consultant practitioner role they're more embedded in the diagnostic field, in diagnostic radiography, so mostly in breast imaging. It's something that is really common. But for therapeutic at that time, I don't think it's a common concept. So then, you know, so, so by that time, We've got quite a field that is a lung specialist or breast specialist, but um, for the role that I created, it's more likely that it's more generic in that sense. Um, and and but I keep saying that you know the college and and, and, and the society and college of radiographers got proper kind of descriptions about different scope of practices available in both diagnostic and, and, and therapeutic radiography. So you know you can be site specialist, you know as you know and and I know that Naman got um, a really great domain, you know about treatment review that can be it, or it can be you know breast, lung, or palliative for therapeutic. So for diagnostic, it can be uh, plain film reporting, MR ultrasound, you know, that all the clinical specialties you can be encounter in that sense. But at the same time, that we do expect that, you know, the consultant practitioner will look at the other domains as well. So Joe, for your point would be about educations, you know, it can be training, it can be governance, it can be, you know, service improvement. I think it's interesting with the clinical academic group, there aren't that many, really. And what I've seen, I think when we spoke to Heidi, um, Heidi Price before, it's actually lots of people make the jump to academia. Same as like you did, Joe. But the clinical academic route is so valuable for our profession. I think it's definitely being recognised a lot more. Just as you said, so the physiotherapist, occupational therapist, it's very recognised in their roles. And now I think it's quite difficult to always have time to do all four pillars. Um, I'm not sure if that's something that you've experienced yet. So I think it's a really good point. And I think for, I would say, past 12 months, I learned a lot. I think. We're going into a kind of a, a, a space and time that we're trying to have one hat on. So, you know, we try to say that, you know, I'm doing research and they're doing research only. I'm clinical, I'm doing clinical only. I'm academic, I'm only academic only. But actually the truth is everything should link together. So in some way that, you know, I think people feel like clinical academics is always at the high level, but actually no. You can start with the, you know, at the, you know, the undergrad, you know, Joe, you will know. So it depends on how we're going to introduce that culture. So more likely we say that, you know, actually, clinical research academic is something that we need to do no matter what role that you're doing, just because of a professional identity. So, you know, and, and something that I've been recently that I, I and it's a, a new concept, I think, but Joe, you will know that, you know, we keep talking about competency a lot in radiotherapy. But it's not about competency, it's about proficiency. It's about, you know, as a professions, you know, we want, we, we, we're professional, we're not a technicians. So you want to be a professional, we need to have a proficiency. So it's not just about competency. So I think that concept, I think, need to come into the things that, you know, but how can we have the proficiency 
instead of just competency. Because competency will stay on the level that is, you know, maybe just as a skills level, but proficiency is the one that we're able to say, do you know what, that's my prof professional judgment. You know, so it can be either your academic skills, it can be your research skills, all these skills, it give you some extra to do your clinical work. It's saying that, do you know what, I'm just not just following the protocol. I'm not just following what people told me. Actually, I have my professional judgment about the work that I'm doing. And this professional judgment comes from your academic and your research skills. I think this is something in my role that I'm starting to really try and establish is, yes, you have protocols, you know, side effects can be treated in specific ways, but there are times when you can't always bounce off a colleague. I mean, we have a very good kind of mixed team. So we have three nurses, two radiographers in the team, but we get to bounce off the registrars, which actually in some other departments, you don't have that access if it's not a teaching hospital. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting when you look at it that way, that it is your professional judgment. You do have the skills and knowledge. You have got this job out of your own proficiency, competency, but you do have to trust yourself a bit sometimes. But it's scary, I think, as a therapeutic radiographer, it's not something you're used to, uh, in, in my opinion, anyway. But... Yeah, but I think, knowing that you were talking about, I'm going to bring in Joey now with her education hats on. If you look at our professional training compared to... Uh, because we deal with clinical oncologists, you know, you look at the oncologist training, what would be the different? You know, it's about the clinical reasoning. So, you know, for them, the situations they encounter is not something they're used to. You know, you look at the SPR or senior registrar, a lot of information they need to digest, but it's about the clinical rationing, uh, the clinical reasoning and clinical rationale they need to encounter. So it's not about they know everything, but it's about they know what is the safe thing to do to judge at that occasion and when they need to ask for help. So same thing as diagnostic or therapeutic radiographer, or same as and um, you know allied health and nurses. We all got our professional identity. So a protocol is for something that for us to, shall I say, target eighty percent of a workload. You know, we know that there's some 80% that we deal in and out. We are very familiar with. We know that they are following the standard protocol. But for that rest of the 20%, the special ones, what are we going to deal with it? I don't think there's absolutely right and wrong answer to deal with it. I think in radiography that, you know, we try to do say, right, this wrong. But actually, a lot of clinical scenario, there's no right and wrong. We're all in a gray area. We love a protocol, don't we? We do. In radiography, we love a protocol. And it kind of goes against what some of that inherent clinical training is about, where you're like, is it protocol driven? And it is about, actually, I do know what I'm doing. And I say this all the time to anyone I'm with um, who is maybe outside of oncology and doesn't know what the role of a therapeutic radiographer is or, or what the training is to be a therapeutic radiographer. But I'm always even though I helped design the curriculum, bowled over by how much we actually teach therapeutic radiographers. Like they're not just people who will go in and deliver radiation treatments. We essentially teach about, you know, prehabilitation, rehabilitation, uh, long-term side effects, radiobiology, all of the physics. Like they wonder as academics, we're all stressed because there's so much content. But it, it, it is honestly, it is true that there is so much that we do teach and, and not just about radiotherapy, it is obviously about cancer pathway as well. So it's really nice for that to kind of be acknowledged in roles like this where you can support cancer patients, not just with their radiotherapy, but with their whole cancer pathway, really. Yeah, Joe, I think you just bring a really, really valid point. You know, as an educator, your job would be so easy if I just tell you that, you know, you only need to ensure that people need to follow step A to B 
to C, and then they got outcome D. You know, that's not what education is about. You know, I always say that um, I love protocol, but I feel like I do a good job for the training is for someone to change the protocol, improve the protocol. That's the whole point, you know. So protocol, actually, even the advanced practice, that is a relative terms, you know. Nowadays, we can't advanced practice in this country. It can be standard practice in Canada, or it can be standard practice five years later. But it's about how can we progress our professions in that sense to you know ensure that we get what we need. I think it's an interesting point about advanced practice. So obviously, being a consultant radiographer, that is advanced practice, but also as a kind of a band seven, so sort of one kind of lower if you want for advanced practice. So I'm quite lucky, also maybe not lucky, but having to in a way develop some competencies for my own role. So they haven't really had a competency package um, for treatment review radiographer. Um, I want to say competency package we changed the title to learning and development pathway exactly because of what you said because actually yes you can have all the competencies but you don't get that extra about clinical judgment reasoning audits research blah 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 I can go on forever all of those things from a competency because there are actually there aren't many audit kind of um, courses if you want for let's say allied health professionals they're more aimed at doctors who want to get into um, audits for example so we, I was quite lucky working with uh, Carly Elliott, who's our quality lead in my department, um, developed it and then we presented it at LTRAP conference. So trying to look at it from not just the competence you need to hit to be safe, to be able to talk to patients and look after them, but um, so all the four pillars. So in research, if you do a leadership course, yes, that's good, but that doesn't always teach leadership. So how can you apply those concepts into practice? Or then um, education. So apart from just teaching students what review is, but what are the extra skills that they could have so that, let's say, someone on the street has a cardiac arrest what can they do and you know they actually can help without just standing back it's those kind of things and it, it's interesting that other departments are trying to incorporate the four pillars in competency but i think it's also quite hard because again like we go back to the phone you need the time mm. um, and you can't do 100 percent clinical practice and then do the four pillars on top of it which is what happens quite a lot yeah every number i i say that the only comments i can make is that one of the kind of the uh, saying that I just learned about leadership, they say the leadership is about actions, not about positions. So, you know, what you just say that actually define it really well, you know, if we all be defined and box standard down to our operational work, actually there's no innovation into that. So as you say about, you know, I, I'm not saying that we should be, our work or should I say our professional identity should not be defined by just the bending but at the same time I think it's important for us to be able to say that you know actually maybe my role that is to challenge a system you know it's not about what you told me what is the system is what I can do to improve it you know and 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 something that I don't even read this there's, there's a really good article talking about you know clinical academics they talk about you know why why the concept is so old and why we struggled with the kind of the clinical academics uh, career in the healthcare uh, profession settings. And what they describe is they say, actually we've got a lot of strong people to be clinical academics. They describe a situation a bit like a, a organ transplant. The organs are really strong, they're ready to go, but it's the body, the system may not be ready for them. So I think that is a. I always say you use that 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 kind of the the metaphor to to the students that I I, I kind of teach university. So because clinical academics, they're trained to questions, they're trained to challenge the situations, but the system, the organizations, they may not be ready for them. 
just because they don't want the change. So then, then we got these rejections. So then, when rejections happened, the organs died. And I think that is the kind of the sad things that happened in the past, I would say. Oh, yeah, I'm so stealing that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love that. I will definitely credit you, I promise, but I'm definitely stealing that. I send you the link of the blog. I send you the link. It's a really interesting blog. Yeah, we will. We'll definitely share it as part of the podcast. So, yeah, day to day, what does your day look like in your role? So... I don't want to use my gender card, Joe, that, you know, as a boy, I'm not very organized. I don't even know that what my day looks like. Um, so I use my diary quite a lot. So to ensure that, you know, I, I, I know exactly that um, um, what is being scheduled. And then I share my diary with my team so they know that what I got on. And so um, I got a job plan and I wished I could have told you it's recording, is it? I, I say it out loud. I wish I could tell you that I stick to my job plan every day, but the truth is, it doesn't. And 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 so um, so I do have clinics time that you know about you know my clinical role that to ensure that able to facilitate the patient pathway. So we do have a target to ensure that we're able to um, um, get the patient treated from the initial referral within two weeks. I think that is a target that we set ourselves to do for steatetic body radiotherapy. So it's quite a rapid turnaround that we try to do that for, for the initial referral to the end of treatment within 14 days. Um, so my job to try to facilitate that, you know, ensure they're able to introduce different radiographer lab procedures to facilitate that. But at the same time, for my um, uh, national or international involvement in radiotherapy, that is, whatever that comes in, I try to slot them in. And, and, and so you've asked me that, you know, what, what does that kind of include? That, you know, it can be different projects. So, you know, I involve in the advanced project, advanced practice project, you know, either with the Canadian group or that within um, the European um, Society of uh, Radiation and Oncology that, you know, there's a really big, for asteroid that we've got a really big agenda for the uh, therapeutic radiographers and the radiation therapists about the advanced practice, about how can we push the boat. So, you know, that's something that I call you more in. Um, I debate that I involve quite a lot, you know, um, um, as a proud UK registered therapeutic radiographers, we support our professional body. So I involved in quite a lot of the society and college radiographers work. So, you know, either uh, we've got the consultant radiographer advisory group. So the currently I'm the chair for that group. At the same time that we've got the, uh, the job that you will know that the approval, the accreditation board, you know, they look after, you know, different um, education providers about different courses, uh, either undergrad or postgrad courses approval. We involved in that and also about the advanced and consultant practitioner accreditations to go through that board as well. So I think there's the two main things that are involved with the college. I don't know how to answer your questions. I can't really tell you. No, that is that is perfect. That basically helps um, establish why you are a very busy man because you do so much and how you just manage your diary in itself is pretty impressive. And I think it was Heidi Prost on her podcast who said that actually you're one of the busiest men she knows <laughs> in radiotherapy. So the fact that you do so much is uh, is very admirable, but also shows how passionate you are about your career, but also the profession itself. And I think that comes across when whenever you present, and I'm sure anyone in the profession would have seen you at some stage presenting somewhere on something, uh, but it's very interesting from that perspective 
Yeah, you've been um, you've been quite active on Twitter recently around EDI. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing at the moment and kind of maybe why you're in that sphere as well? Yeah, definitely. And 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 I would say that mostly the the EDI bit that I touched is mostly on the on the race. I would say for ethnicity. Um, what I started is um, I got involved with our regional HP board. And then, so our regional East of England Chief HP that you know they have a call out, and 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 I don't know, Nam and Joe, that you heard about that for couple, they got um they got a, a ethic multi a strategic advisory group, so they got a call out I think it's about twelve months ago to look for a regional representative, so um and you know me that you know something that I'm quite passionate about which I can go through that later, so then I applied and I got into. Uh, uh, kind of the East of England representative to that group for the ethnic minority um, uh, SAG for couple, um, and then all started is um, uh, from our regions that we um, I think uh, with Janus work you know about for the next HP strategy and one of the things they look at is try to look at you know some regional feedback so we do a regional focus group um, for people for our colleagues to comment about uh, the next HP strategy one thing that we find that is um, there is a need from our region in East of England to create something that is HP specific, and then and so we're able to talk about the ethnicity related issues, and and so um, I think both if you look at the, the data, you know, from Capo that we you, you know that for band AA or above, for colleagues from uh, ethnic diverse background, actually it's only about twelve percent. You know, so it's just a general comment on that. We're not even diverted, or, or should I say, we're not even looking into a specific, you know, um, uh, out of the 14 AHP professions, what is that is about? So just within AHP that, you know, for the kind of the representations, you know, of our ethnicity, you know, at the leadership level is so low. So we know that there is a need for us to change it. So, um, so then I get into that space, and then so we set up uh, our East of England HP Ethnic Minority Network. So I'm the current chair of the network. I try to look at you know, provide a safe space for our colleagues to mention about the issues they've had. At the same time, we try to create some momentum and some actions. Try to improve the definite about diversity in the workforce is needed. So, um, I would say that um, uh, within East of England, I don't know if you heard about, you know, uh, recently we launched our anti-racism strategy. So there is something that a lot of good work coming out from it. So um, I need to say about, you know, my colleague Roger Klein about no more tick boxes and your face fit. Those two documents, perfect. You know, a lot of times that we all know with the kind of the momentum coming from the US, you know, from George Floyd, you know, and then and then we know that, you know, Black Lives Matter. We know that anti-racism is something that is so deep down in our culture and also so deep down in our NHL professions. But at the same time, a lot of people see that as a tick box exercise. You know, what does that really mean? And, and I would say that I'm still in the learning phase in that agenda you know so you know that you know and but we know that the concept is about you know if we had a leadership role not being a racist not good enough is we need to be anti-racist we need to encourage and then proactively point out the the kind of the, the the inequality that we've got you know in our system so that's why the next you know the hp strategy will talk about social justice you know, we're not just talking about, you know, equality or how equitable the system is. We're talking about, you know, there's something that fundamentally is wrong in the system. You know, I think something that I'm quite passionate about is 
a lot of trust is that, oh, I got a whistleblowing policy. You know, if anything happened, people can come forward. Then I say, well, hang on a second. Why do we need to wait for things to happen for people to come forward? Actually, the system is not right. The system should be set up to let these occasions to keep it to a minimal. We should not need our colleagues to suffer experience for them to come forward to justify you know, the, the inequality they encounter. It's something that deep in the system that we should avoid that to happen to start with. So I think that's kind of the, I want to say that I'm involved with the whole EDI agenda, but I think that, you know, some about, you know, the, the kind of the, the anti-racism, you know, the, the, the work that I've been doing in the East of England around the HP world. And have you had lots of engagement from people as part of that? Yeah, so definitely we've got, we've got a lot of colleagues, they, 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 they're willing to share, you know, the, the kind of the, the experience and content. It's something that I never heard of, you know, and I would say that I'm quite fortunate in my career that, you know, I always got looked after. But I always say that um, actually we should kind of self fortunate that we only hear about racism and not to experience it. I think you to experience it for someone to come forward to talk about it. Actually, it's quite heartbroken. So I think it's something that you know. I think um, our colleagues they're quite willing to really um, 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 to share you know the experience and then and, and 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 then we can learn from it. You know to say that you know actually what happened. Um, I think you will see that on the Twitter world that, you know, that is um, the EDI or should I say the, the, the kind of racism that is something that we've been talking about quite a lot recently. But at the same time, that I always say that, you know, as um, someone in a leadership positions or, you know, in a system level, um, maybe talking is not enough. Maybe we've done enough talking already. It's about what is the actions that we try to do. You know, so I think one of the capital that, you know, for the, the, the ethnic minority um, uh, SAG that we try to do is we try to put down some solid actions. You know, we want to influence, we want to, you know, have a say in a lot of national strategy. So hopefully for the next HP strategy, you will see the input from the from our capital um, uh, ethnic minority SAG that about the input that we put that into. That all sounds amazing. It's a lot of work and you're clearly very passionate about it. Um, I suppose something as well is about unconscious bias. That's probably an action, I think, for me, even probably my own way of where I've been brought up and what I've been taught by my family. It's something I have, you do have to kind of look at yourself in a, in a microscope, really, to be like, well, actually, if I want to be treated in a certain way, I need to make sure everything I've done, I learn from it and I make myself better because you can't really be involved in EDI if you yourself aren't really following the EDI pathway. Yeah. This is something I've seen quite a lot. Um, doesn't matter where, in not even in the medical world, but okay, I've got a rainbow badge on, but that doesn't mean you're completely fully involved with EDI. That badge represents a lot of people, um, and that there's a lot to that as well. And obviously, there's a few other campaigns always going on, but you know, educating other people is one big action. But breaking down the unconscious bias, I think I'm still struggling, maybe with other people with my own experiences that actually just little things that people think isn't actually racist, but it really is, and. I understand it, it can be challenging and it's difficult to call people out on it, but you have to do it. And even as it, it's always uncomfortable being someone from, you know, a person of colour, BAME background, whatever the correct term is, it's really hard calling people out because it shouldn't really be our responsibility, but it ends up being that way. I was going to say it's, it's, it is everyone's responsibility, isn't it? And I think that's absolutely key. And ha- recognising that, and I know from having Shireen on and talking to Rachel Moses on previous podcasts, you know, they are so passionate about inclusivity, as everyone should be, but it, it is 
it is, as you've said, yeah, it isn't a responsibility of someone who is of ethnic minority to change the system. It's for everyone else to go, oh, actually, I need to action something and I need to do something. And, you know, I shouldn't rely on someone else telling me what I need to do or what I need to educate myself about and give me those resources and those experiences. I need to learn that for myself. And I know um, just as a result of doing the podcast, that's definitely something that I've kind of taken on board and started to appreciate much more. Yeah, did you have to do a bit of kind of self-reflection when you started working at that level? I definitely learned a lot through through that level that, you know, and, and, and that's something that I recently learned quite a lot about the compassionate leadership. And, and Joe, I think, and Naman, you know as well, you know, for our professional progressions that, you know, we build up that confidence when you chair a meeting. But what I learned the other bit that actually for, in a leadership role in these settings, actually when you learn to be vulnerable, being vulnerable is something wrong with it. You know, being vulnerable actually make you compassionate, you know, make you able to feel and then try to, you know, ensure that we look after people. And then, you know, something that I keep kind of keep writing down and keep reminding myself that, you know, for any meetings, any conversation, any discussion you have with your colleagues, students or your patients, just be kind and be respectful. I think there's a basic human interactions that we should all have these two principles with us. You know, I think that's what I learned a lot, you know, in that sense that, you know, because at the same time, you know, when you chair a meeting or you chair, you know, a conference, usually that, you know, you, you try to ensure that you're on time, you know, bring in some professional, you know, not arrogance, but you provide your, some professional confidence. But in that settings, we don't know. And the things that more that I talk to people that I just realize how little that I know about the whole agenda. I think that's the interesting bit. And, and I, I think the other thing that, you know, um, one example that I would say that, you know, I think Serene may talk about it, just about the terms, BAME, BME, ethnic minority, or maybe we should not use the word minority, you know, maybe, you know, minoritized, you know, all these words that, you know, that you just come into, you know, the, the whole learning camp that we're able to, you know, absorb and, and, and evolve around that, you know. But I would say one thing that is, at the moment, the system still make people feel like they need to change themselves to fit in. And, and, and it's not just us, you know, I talked to some of my colleagues that, you know, they feel like, you know, from, you know, from Asian background, do you know what? You need to study hard. You need to do well. You need to better in the academic world because that's what you need to prove yourself so you're able to fit in. Why? But we all got told when we were a kid, you know, yeah, you, do, you know, study harder. You know, you know, then not to say that I don't think my mom is, just, you know, the tiger mom. But, you know, as a Chinese parents, you know, they would say, yeah, you need to do well. You know, you need to get, you know, ensure that you get A for your exams and everything. But that is kind of the culture. And, and, and otherwise, you're not going to fit in. You're not going to get a good job. So, so you feel like that, you know, when you come from that background that you will do one, you know, extra hard to ensure that you get what you need. And but I think that is something that hopefully we're able to change with the future generations. I think similar experience to me, if you don't work hard, there's a big backhand in it for you. So yeah. <laughs> that kind of discipline was something I was always taught. Um, I think it's interesting you said about terminology. There's another thing. So for me, some people might not agree, but I don't like the way curry is called curry. It's That takes away from all of the different types of Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, you know, Sri Lankan cuisine there is. 
So when you call it a curry house, it's not a curry house. And actually, most of the times when you go to an Indian restaurant, it might actually be a Bangladeshi person. That, that's quite common in, in some places across it, um, London as well. But actually, some of the places, there might be Pakistani cuisine. And actually, they have very slight different tweaks. But that is that's an important terminology to me. I'm always trying to say it, but not everyone agrees with me. Um, but that's my, I don't know, unpopular opinion or popular opinion, whatever you want to look at it as. But it, there's huge differences Um but that is extremely important, you know, the point that you just pick out, you know, I think it's about we're addressing that, you know, something that is different. So ways that we've got different, you know, uh, and the kind of ethnicity they're able to list when we're feeling the form. But when you look at religions that, you know, or we keep talking about, you know, one of the things that I, when I talk to, um, you know, um, and Janice quite a lot is about, you know, travelers. They don't even have that to be looked after. You know, and then now recently we've got a feel um, um, momentum going for the, you know, for sexuality, for LGBTQIA plus. But there's something that we're still working towards to for the protected characteristics because everything that counts, you know, in healthcare, you were not able to, you know, have these diverse populations in our workforce. We're not able to look after the patient need when we can't represent what actually the population that we need to look after. Yeah, when you put the tunic on all your scrubs, that's something that stands for, right? The NHS. There are, what, 70 plus nationalities, everything. You represent everyone once you put it on. Yep. And it's difficult to do because in some areas in the country, we've, this has come up in so many different themes that you don't always have a diverse background of, of patient cohort or even like colleagues. And actually some colleagues who might be from a protective characteristic or from a different community, they might not want to move further away from home just because of what their family says. Um, and that, that's another difference that is, I know, Joe, you've come across it through uh, sorry, Sheffield Hallam University and stuff quite a lot. I think it goes back as well to personalised care and, and then not just personalised care of the patient. It's kind of that personalised colleague engagement. You know, you it isn't a one size fits all. And sometimes I just want to shake the system and go, you can't just put brand that across everything. This is protocol. This is what we do, because that isn't personalised care. And I think just asking the questions, you know, nobody can be expected to know everything about every protected characteristic. I think, you know, definitely you can educate yourself better. But that isn't what everyone is saying. It is essentially going, do you know what? Ask the question, be inquisitive. How do people like to be um to be referred to, you know, is there anything that we need to know about to help ensure that your care is as you want it? And that takes time. Um, so, you know, from a workforce perspective, we need more workforce to be able to ensure that we can offer this personalised care. And that's probably throughout the oncology pathway. And don't get me started in all, in all of what we do need. But I think personalised care is fundamental. Would you would you kind of agree, yeah, in terms of where maybe as a therapeutic radiographer listening might go, okay, so there's lots of things that I need to do, but what is it do you think that's most important if people were to take something away from this podcast and the work that you've done? I think, Joda, I think you just mentioned a really key word about, you know, the whole personalised and identity. You know, I think sometimes that, you know, I think I'm really proud to be a therapeutic radiographer, but that doesn't define me. So, you know, so naming that you're talking about your, you know, treatment review role, that's not only thing that you do. So, you know, I always say that, you know, don't let a word to define who you are. You know, I think for my whole career that I've always say that, you know, I, you know, I, I'm proud to be a therapeutic radiographer, but I will never say that, you know, um, the work that I've done 
just because of my professional background, you know, actually the work that I've done because I have something to contribute. So I would say that, you know, Joe, that you just mentioned a really key point, you know, for our radiographer colleagues is, you know, um, radiography where, you know, one of the 14 AHP, you know, and around with the nurses, you know, midwives, we make up majority of the workforce within our healthcare. You know, we work very closely with the medics. But all these terms doesn't define who we are, you know. So Joe, that you got, you got a book class role, you got an educator role, you know, you got a society and college radiographer roles, and then you got your family roles. All these make up as an individual. So I would say that, you know, that's the important thing, you know. And, and if we talk about the whole career, the one thing that I would say that, you know, I don't think is a good thing for people to do, do you have a good work-life balance? That's important. You know, I think is something that will keep you going and then um, and, and, and don't make people make you feel guilty for having some family time or having some your time is important. So work is work at the same time, your personal time for your self reflections and to a bit of self care. There's something that another saying that I learned a lot is if you can't look after yourself, you can't look after other people. I think that's a very important thing that I would say that you know try to do. It's not like I'm doing very well, but here you go. <laughs> Amazing, I love it, and the perfect way to kind of end the podcast on. Are there any other hints or tips that you would advise um, anyone listening? Yeah, um, I would say, don't be scared or don't be afraid to knock on the doors. You know, if something that you're interested, go to find out more. Just because people told you you can't doesn't mean that you can't. So, um, but I'm not saying that, you know, so locking the door, there is an the art of it, which I learned quite a lot. You know, sometimes you lock it hard and sometimes you need to lock it gently. And sometimes you need to go back, you know, run away and come back again for that. But I think it's about, but if there's something that you really want to do, explore it, engage it, embrace it. Don't be scared or just be told that, oh, that's not for you. That person can't judge you. You know, you're the one telling yourself that, you know, what you want to do and what you can do. So I think that's the important things. Perfect. And you could put that, yeah, on a nice inspirational poster and we could give that out to all the AHPs in the country. So that was, yeah, uh, advocating for knock and run, I think. (laughs) Yeah, knock and run. (laughs) So um, thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara, and my colleague, Naaman Jolka-Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Yat. Head over to our YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed, and to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Claire O'Neill, who will be discussing her treatment journey and role at the charity Copperfield. So thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Yat. Thank you.